Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Ryan Holiday is a prolific, best-selling author of numerous books, including The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic, and the number one New York Times bestseller, Stillness is the Key. And he's back on the show today to discuss his latest must-read, which will surely also be another bestseller, Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control. Ryan, welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me. Always love your books. Always great to have you on the show. Um, I love how you set the stage for this book. You start off by writing, we have so much freedom. When, when you're, if you're bored, you can travel. If you hate your job, you can change it. If you, cra- if you crave it, you can have it. If you think it, you can say it. If you want it, you can buy it. If you dream it, you can chase it. And I'm nodding my head, yes, yes, yes. And then you go on to say, yet we're so darn unhappy. So let's go there. Why are we so darn unhappy? Well, I, th- I think abundance is obviously wonderful. It's it's better than the alternative, right? Like it's wonderful to live in the future that we live where you can, where you have things that, you know, a, a French king 400 years ago would have found unfathomable uh, and, and and even out of their reach. So it's wonderful that we have all these things. And in fact, even the American system, right? The American system was designed to basically say people should be able to largely do whatever they want. But when the founders come up with this idea, there was no part of them that thought that people should do whatever they want, whenever they want it. The, 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 the purpose of freedom and success and abundance is to empower you, the individual, to take control of your own life and to set reasonable limits on what you do and don't do. We, we, we get this profoundly wrong. I, I tend to write about the Stoics, but uh, as far as the Epicureans are concerned, you know, they're, they're seen as these sort of lovers of pleasure. But what I love, the, the rule from Epicurus was basically like, if it gives you a hangover after, it's not very pleasurable. And I think that is the result of, that. that is a sort of metaphor for the abundance that we have. We have all these things that we can do that we have access to. And it's really sort of the, the rushing into all of them that gives us that hangover uh, and that sort of overwhelm of like, man, this is just too much. This is not... This is legal, but it's not exactly uh, proper. And that's where discipline comes in. And, I, and I'm curious, you could have gone so many different directions in this series, but, but you chose discipline. My hunch was, in reading the book, I'm saying to myself, we're just pretty bad about this right now. Is that your take? I think it is. I mean, uh, obviously, the pandemic, you look at uh, a number, millions of people who used to have to go into an office and have very prescribed limits of like, this is when I have to arrive, this is when I can take a break, this is what I have to accomplish today, right? Sort of very regimented life. And I don't think that's a particularly fulfilling or wonderful or ideal scenario. Um, That's certainly not how I live or how I like, I try to empower my employees. But when suddenly everyone is thrust into an environment in which they're working from home and they have unlimited choices and no supervision, they really struggle because they, they now in the absence of a boss managing you or in many cases micromanaging you, you have to be your own boss. 
And this requires a lot of skill. Uh, the Stoics, uh, as they were, were often advisors to like emperors and kings. And they, they talk about how the obligation of a person in power is that you have to be under your own power. Like you're, because no one can tell you what to do, you have to be in charge of yourself. You have to rule what they call the greatest empire, which is your wants and desires and thoughts and actions. And and I think that's really what self-discipline is. It's this incredibly difficult but wonderful thing, which is I'm going to be responsible and in charge of myself. Well, let's talk more about that specifically discipline and how you define it. Because I think we we all have an idea of discipline, but it, it's not how we should be really thinking about it. Yeah. You know, I, I defined courage in the first book. So I'm doing this series on the cardinal virtues, which is courage, self-discipline, justice, wisdom. And I was saying that, you know, courage is the the willingness to put your ass on the line. And I you could argue that discipline is is the ability to keep your ass in line right to to be in charge of oneself to to set limits to set standards that you then observe and hold yourself accountable for and again it, it this sounds very simple and sounds very easy but i think any person who's ever sat down and said i'm going to change my diet realizes how difficult this is in practice right we know what we should do but then not just doing it but doing it consistently day to day is one of the hardest things in the world. As a writer, like you know you're supposed to be writing, but no one's there saying, "Hey, did you clock in today?" Like you have to show up and you have to do it every day even when you don't feel like it, even when you're tired, even when it's not going well. And that ability though is what separates the amateurs from the professionals. So in a sense, is discipline about consistency? I think so. You know, uh, in writing, there's that expression that uh, inspiration is for amateurs. And my my friend Stephen Pressfield just wrote a great book with a, a title I love. He says, you know, sort of put your ass where your heart wants to be. And, you know, he's talking about, you know, you got to put your butt in the chair, basically. that That is like step, step one. Uh, can you get where you need to be? Can you just, can you just show up? And I think, uh, you know, that's not as magical and brilliant as being a genius or something. But if you show up every day and you put in some work, you know, cumulatively over time, that adds up in a, in a very big way. Who is it? I think it was Somerset Vaughn. Inspiration strikes precisely at 9 a.m. every day or something yes. along those lines. So how do we get again easier said than done how do we flex those muscles how do we get good at discipline in terms of the day to day you know aristotle talking about virtue is saying that you know it's not this thing you arrive at it's a thing that you do it's a habit right he's like if you want to be more generous you don't just become a generous person you start being generous day to day it's this sort of cumulative process and so, you know, the Somerset uh, mom quote you're talking about is, I think, correct. Like, the reason inspiration is there is because you're there. You put your ass in the chair. And so I'm a big believer in routine, in systems, in doing the same thing over and over again. So in a sense, it almost requires 
more discipline to break the system or the habit or the chain than it does to keep it, right? Like, um, I don't schedule writing into my calendar. That's the that's the expected. I schedule the stuff that is the interruptions to that thing. And that creates an environment where I am reluctant to put things on the calendar because it's taking away from the default, which is me sitting down and tackling the thing I'm supposed to tackle that day. You know, you bring up interruptions and then you start off by saying, you know, we have so much at our fingertips and we're, and we're more in power than ever. We have so much freedom. And I think of all the distractions. I'll use texting for, for example, uh, the mobile device. So is one way to think about this, that discipline should really be about setting routines, boundaries, systems for all the stuff that's superfluous that can interrupt whatever we want to do like start there first because if i look at this phone and texting this is a this is for some people 24 7 no i i think that's exactly right and i've got a bunch of sort of little decisions like that that i've made so number one um and and you could almost see it as like it there's a it's a it's a there's a war between you and the people who want you to use the stuff as much as possible so like um I don't have iMessage on the computer that I write on um, because I don't want my computer to be sending me texts or phone calls while I'm trying to write. When I e- even when I think about my phone, like the do not as I sat down to talk to you, the first thing I did was put it on do not disturb. So the phone doesn't have the ability to interrupt or interfere with me. One of my one of my other two rules is um I don't sleep with my phone in the room with me. Uh, and I don't I don't use it like I don't open the phone for the first 30 minutes to one hour that I'm awake each day. So like I'm setting sort of boundaries or systems that prevent the interruption from happening. Um, but another one, my, my wife and I were just talking uh, about this the other day. She was talking about, you know, she's she's been struggling. She, she, she feels like she's just making too many decisions in her life and that, that, uh, that it's, it's really in the morning that she struggles with it. And she was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start picking out my clothes for the week at, like on the weekend. And so she, she did this this weekend. She was like laying out all the clothes that she's going to wear. The idea being at that moment, she was rested in good shape, uh, in good mental shape, and she could make these decisions. And then she wasn't sort of sapping up her willpower or her discipline, you know, at 7 a.m. with the kids running around like crazy when she has 10 minutes to leave the house. She's doing that beforehand, hopefully making better decisions as a result of doing it at a better time. You know, I'm glad you brought up kids because as you're as you're talking about the power of establishing routines, schedules, it reminds me of, of a child and having kids. If they don't have a routine, it's it's over. Like they they can't function. They they need <laughs> they need structure to some degree. You know, within the structure, they need free time and play time and all that stuff. But like they need some sort of structure. And I think about where we are today. I think. We adults kind of need to get back to that to some degree because we really struggle. Oh no, it's it's totally right. You you I even think like one of the things I talk a lot about in the book is sort of controlling your emotions, not not in the sense that you're you're stuffing them down, but not being provoked, not getting upset, not uh you know not doing making emotional decisions, 
And so we're talking about self-control. But like, when do I make the most emotional sort of decisions? When am I most prone to being angry? When I'm tired and when I'm hungry, right? And they talk about a lot about this in recovery also. Like when you're hungry, when you're lonely, uh, when you're tired, like you're not making good decisions. And so the 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 ability to say, hey, I'm not going to jump in. I'm going to go get something to eat here first, and then I'll be more disciplined about what I have to do is really important. And you see this so visibly with kids. You're like, why is my kid doing this? And then you're like, oh, wait, I forgot about nap time. Or I started dinner 22 minutes later than I normally do. And that's why they've been running around like, and, and so realizing that we're not we would like to think we're vastly superior beings to our children or to our dogs, but we're the same animals as they are. And yes, structure is important, you know, uh, being well-fed, being well-nourished, being well-rested. These are really critical things uh, that, that go into being more disciplined in your life. You know, I, I couldn't agree more. And I want to bring it back to, to showing up. I just think that's so critical. And as an entrepreneur, that's just an inherent skill I have otherwise couldn't do it (laughs) couldn't do it um and and like all of your books you're such a great storyteller and you share these fascinating anecdotes from notable figures in history past and present to to illustrate a point and I'm going to run through a couple of these but I want to start with this idea of showing up and, and you have this great passage you reference Toni Morrison and you say wake up show up be present Give it everything you got. I, I love that. Yeah, she tells this uh, story about you know her decision to become a writer. She was writing her first novel, and she found she had to get up every day and start writing uh, and get her writing done before she heard the word mom, which I just love. I mean, uh, the idea of not just getting up early because you have kids, but getting up before your kids so you can have a few sacred hours in the morning where you tackle what's important to you just the immense amount of discipline that took. But I I also find in her story, especially, like if she got up before her kids, she wrote for an hour or two hours, you know, then she got them up and got them ready for school or whatever. Like by 9 a.m., she's already had a successful day. She would go to her day job, which she was an editor at at Random House and, and a great one at that. But like, she had already won the whole day, right? By like the, before the day had even started. And sometimes I feel this way. Uh, I'm sure people can relate. Like if you get up early and you work out before you do anything, like maybe on a Saturday, like you could have stayed in bed, you know, you could have lounged around, you could have watched TV. But if you got up and you worked out like early in the morning, then you're just like the rest of the day, it feels like you have you're playing on house money or, or it's a bonus day, right? Because you you did the right thing early. And I, I, I'm a, that's why I'm a big believer in really having a great morning routine and tackling the morning properly. Well, I think it speaks to your earlier point about you not checking your phone for the first hour or so. I, I think from a, it's a big mindset shift. If you go straight to device or whatever it is, the day owns you versus you owning the day. You kind of feel like you're back in control when you really are committed to that first hour or two. Yeah. It's like, I don't want to be reactive from the moment I wake up. I was talking to someone the other day. They're like, the first thing I do is I wake up and I check my phone to see if there's any fires I have to put out. And I'm like, 
Well, you definitely find one every morning, right? Like if you go looking for a thing, you're going to find that thing. Like if you open your phone and you're like, I'm wondering if there's anything I should do on my phone. The phone is always going to be like, what about this? What about this? What about this? Right. But if you say, hey, no, the morning is for concentration, for thinking long term, for meditating, for being present, for being with family, et cetera. Like you can you can start the day off with that, cross that off the list. And then everything else from there is is extra. Agreed. I think this is especially important if you have kids, because if they get up before you forget about it. Yes, uh, for sure. I, I have a, I have a six year old and a three year old, and and that is that is the battle. Is is how do you not let the day get away from you before it's even started? You know, okay, Toni Morrison, love her, and I'm not surprised to see someone like that in your book. And then I then I saw Robert Moses, who I who I was surprised. You know, one of my all time favorite biographies was The Power Broker by Robert Caro, which was about Moses, who was just a fascinating character. And as you succinctly described him, you say he was not a kind man, but he was effective. Uh, so let's talk about Moses. How did Moses get in your book? I too love Robert Caro and, and one of the great sort of disciplined writers of our time. I, I heard he's still like even in his 80s, like shows up to, to work every day in a suit, uh, even though he writes books and works for himself. Like the, the idea of even how he dresses and how he approaches the job meaning something to him. But uh, Caro is, is, is fascinated with uh, Robert Moses as this kind of evil genius, which he was. And one of my favorite anecdotes in The Power Broker, which I also love uh, and uh, you know urge everyone to read, uh, he talks about how uh, Moses makes this decision to have, and, and, and for people who don't know, Robert Moses is like basically the most productive non-elected official in American history. He simultaneously holds basically every important municipal and developmental position in New York City for most of the 20th century uh, or the, 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 the middle, uh, the, the early parts of the 20th century builds untold amounts of bridges and highways and roads and beaches and public parks. How does he get it all done? One of the things that Carl talks about is, is this decision Moses makes, which is to have a table instead of a desk. Now, this might seem very minor and, and to a degree it was. But this decision to have a table instead of a desk, which isn't filled with drawers and cabinets where you can hide things away is really important. A desk has to be, you know, uh, papers in, papers out. It had to be kept organized and clean. Uh, the idea was things couldn't pile up. Things couldn't be squirreled away. And, and I tell that story to make a, a point um, uh, Gretchen Rubin put it in a wonderful uh, epigram. She said, inner order, or she said, outer order, inner calm. And I think the idea of, again, to go to systems, to go to structures, to go to environments, how the, the environment that you work in, that you operate in, that you live in is representative of your discipline. And it's also going to be predictive of your output. And so the decision to keep things clean, to keep things straight, uh, to, to keep them in order is is a really important one. Building off of Caro, he, he's my favorite biographer. And I, I read the Lyndon Johnson books. And I, I was saying to you before the show, I, I saw him speak at a bookstore, I think it was like 20 years ago or so. 
And something he said, I'll never forget. It, it was kind of like the why. And, and he, he's fascinated by power. And he said that Lyndon Johnson did everything possible to gain power. Uh, but then once he achieved the power, he used it to do good. The more power, on the other hand, the more power Moses got, <laughs> he, he used it for the sake of power. And his thesis was power's the great revealer. What are you choosing to do with it? What, what's your take on power in general and, and, and that thesis? I, I think that's that's exactly right. He says power doesn't corrupt. That's too simple. He said what power does is reveal. And so there's the argument to be made that inside, despite all his machinations and Machiavellianism, Lyndon Johnson is fundamentally good. He uses his power to pass civil rights and a number of other really important things. Uh, and Robert Moses, uh, despite you know beginning with all of his idealism and love of public parks and whatever, is fundamentally bad. And getting all the power that he has reveals that. Um, I think there's another interesting argument that they sort of both reveal that we struggle with today. I talk about power a bit in the in the book because I think it pertains to discipline, which is um, we we like to think this also pertains to the virtue of justice. We'd like to think that what matters is the righteousness of your cause, the goodness of what you're trying to do, the logic of the arguments that you're trying to make. But that's not true, right? Uh, politics, life. Uh, change is fundamentally about power. And if you don't have any power, you can't make any change. Uh, you can't make change. And so, you know, we are struggling with today an environment in which, you know, some not so great people control all most of the levers of power, uh, particularly, you could argue, the judiciary. And this is going to stymie a lot of the progress and change that needs to happen. It's going to prevent us from being able to address the the major problems of our time. I think uh, the, the tricky part, what I'm fascinated with as far as the Stoics, like you look at Marcus Aurelius, here's this guy who has absolute power, like power that even a Lyndon Johnson or a Robert Moses couldn't have, couldn't have uh, envisioned. And it too, you know, doesn't corrupt. It reveals a kind of goodness. But part of that is discipline, I think. Like, suddenly you're in a position where you can do all these things that ordinary people don't even get to consider doing, right? And do you have the discipline to say, I'm not going to do that? I tell the story quite, a, I talk about George Washington a number of times in the book. Not only is Washington the only founder to free his slaves at, at the end of his life, but multiple times, Washington walks away from power. He resigns his commission multiple times. He walks away after two terms. You know, the ability to say power is important. I need power to do what I want in the world, but also not to be addicted or consumed by power is really important. And I think ultimately that's what happens to Robert Moses. Like once he he's so addicted and dependent on power that it takes over his life and it almost replaces any other reason that he has for being. When I hear you speak, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, the, I think our systems are fragile right now. Uh, without going down the rabbit, the rabbit hole of politics, I think social media technology 
is a big problem, but I also think to some degree it's a reflection of, of what's going on. With that said, I do think technology, specifically social media companies and those leaders have an insane amount of power. Do you believe that, you know, you know, the, the, the Zuckerbergs, the, I'm not going to go name by name, but, but some, some, I'll start with Zucker, Zuckerberg was just on Rogan. So it's top of mind. Uh, do you think in a situation like that, wh what's your take? Is, is he really, do, do you think he's really upset with where we are and, and the platform he built and what it's doing? Like, I, I'm curious your perspective. Well, actually, to go back to Robert Caro, like uh, he has this observation about Robert Moses. You know, he, he says that Ro so Robert Moses basically becomes this rich, powerful, unelected bureaucrat who has all these perks. He drives around New York City in a limousine. He never waits in traffic. He never pays a toll. Uh, and so when you drive around New York and you're like, why are there so many? Why is there so much traffic and gridlock? And why is it so inefficient? Well, Robert Moses, the designer of these things, never experienced the downside of any of the things that he was creating, right? He was not dependent on the system or else he probably wouldn't have designed it the way that he did. You know, he never rode a public bus in his life. Um, uh, and I think there's, you could make a certain argument or a similar argument about Zuckerberg and, and whatever, like, um, you know, he doesn't live in a world uh where social media is particularly corruptive or uh, controlling or problematic, right? He has access to smart people. He has time to read books. You know, he has, he has a, he's not, his world isn't being negatively affected by uh, some of the externalities of the very lucrative business that he's built. And I do think that is a problem. And, and this is where all these virtues intersect with each other. Like the justice, uh, the injustice of building a great business that's, that's profitable for you and really good for certain interests, but really bad for, let's say, a democratic system, you know, uh, I think that's obviously profoundly in, in unjust and and i think needs to be addressed when when i when i think about like some of these uh, these sort of modern day oligarchs you know you, you're you're sort of impressed by the power that they have on the one hand and then find it laughable how little power they claim to be. I remember after the election, he's just sort of like, Facebook didn't have anything to do with why a certain person was or wasn't elected. And then the same person's like, here's why companies have to advertise with us. Our system is so, our product is so influential and changes so many people's minds, right? So it's frustrating, I think, to deal, to, to, to watch people who are very powerful but don't take that power uh, very seriously and don't and sort of reject some of the obligations or responsibilities that one would think need to go along with that power. Segwaying to, to success and discipline, you know, I, I would think that one needs some level of discipline to be successful. And once people achieve success, it's one thing achieving it. It's another thing, you know, are you happy? Um, but, but also, are you, are you 
maintaining that success. You know, you, you've accomplished a goal, uh, and for some people that's enough. For 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 other people, they they keep going, uh, and others fall apart. What, what do you what do you think happens in terms of discipline in the situations where some people, you know, are on our journey? They're disciplined. They achieve a goal. They keep going. They're happy versus achieve the goal, profoundly unhappy. Discipline kind of goes out the window, or maybe they live in a bubble like Mark Zuckerberg, and none of this matters. Sports are a great example of this or a microcosm of it, right? So you win a championship, like the Rams, they're, they're coming off a championship. Well, uh, the league now conspires against you to make repeating, let alone maintaining that success, almost impossible, right? You have the worst schedule, you have the worst draft picks, you went the furthest the furthest into the postseason last year, so you had the least amount of recovery time. Uh, and you now have to renegotiate uh, a bunch of contracts and you have to maintain or retain talent who now has uh, offers from all the other teams who want to steal them from you. Plus, all the other teams just watched what you did and have a better understanding of your offense and defense. And this is how life is, right? Like, of course, as you said, you need discipline to be successful. But then once you're successful, just doing that same thing now requires more discipline. And you have to have more discipline because you have a million other things that you now can do. Like one of the paradoxes of, uh, of writing a book that sells well it, or being a successful writer is you have all these asks and opportunities to do things that are not writing, that are more fun or more lucrative or at least easier than putting your ass in the chair and starting with the blank page again. And if you don't have the discipline to force yourself to do that, that next book, that next thing, that next season is just not going to happen. You know, you close the book by sharing that you hit a wall in the process of writing this very book. And I think we all hit walls, yet some of us break through or climb them, others turn around, stop. How can we all get better when we're faced with that proverbial wall and ultimately come to the right decision, push through or, or pull back? I mean, I think earlier in my life, I wasn't even aware when I was hitting walls. So, you know, I'd, I'd suddenly just things would be difficult or, you know, I'd be struggling with this or that. And I, I, I didn't even have the ability to step back and go, I'm hitting a wall. I've written this many books in this many years. I'm just struggling. I need to step back. I need to reevaluate. I need to make some changes in my system, in my routine. I need to make, you know, these following adjustments. Like just even the awareness of like, hey, it's not always going to be at this level. It's going to go like this, right? I think that's really important. And then it, it that gives you the ability to consciously say, hey, this is a turning point or, you know, if I can get through this on the other side, I'm going to be better or stronger. It's like working out, like realizing, hey, this is hard because I'm trying to get over, you know, uh, 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 over something here. I'm trying to get through a plateau here. It, under, I think just having some awareness of these walls. Um, 
But for me, the main thing I try to focus on that helped me is like, let me get, let me dial it back down to just like, what's the most immediate thing in front of me? What is like the process that I need to follow? And if I just trust that process, if I don't get too concerned or consumed with like finished results, with where this is leading, um, I tend to do better. So I, I just, I, I like to just wake up and go, what do I have to do today? I'm just going to focus on that. And I'm not going to get too overwhelmed with anything bigger or smaller than that. I love that. Very practical. One step at a time. So what, what are my other favorite anecdotes from the book? Another one of my all-time favorite books, Endurance, chronicling Ernest Shackleton. Uh, what, let's talk about Shackleton. Yeah, I mean, even you think about his journey, right? So they get stuck in the ice, they 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 last as long as they can, and then they have to make this this break for safety. Uh, they end up on what is it, Elephant Island, or, or they, they end up on this island um, after thousands of miles at sea, and then you know, then he has to make another journey, then he has to go back. Like if he had, if if you had told him on the ice, like, hey this is the journey that you're going to have to undergo to have any potential chance of surviving this. I mean, I'm not sure he could have done it, right? It, it would have been so overwhelming as to seem utterly impossible and probably not worth trying. And so I think that that is itself an argument to breaking things down into smaller pieces, right? And like, what is, what do I have, what is my best chance of success, uh, of success or survival right now. He was like, we just got to get off this fucking ice, right? And that that's what he does, right? So he, he gets somewhere and then he's like, okay, we can't survive here. I'm going to take as few people as possible and I'm going to try to get to the nearest, you know, uh, the nearest bit of civilization, right? And, and I think that that's kind of how I think about it on books too, is like, I'm not thinking about where this is going to be two years from now. I'm like, what do I have to write today? And and knowing that, hey, if you show up every day and you do that thing, if you just survive till tomorrow, you know, eventually uh, that adds up to a life or a finished book or a company. I've, I, I've got to imagine there's been so many moments in your company that like, you're like, look, we just have to get to the next payroll period, right? Like, uh, we just have to raise the next bit of money or we just have to find a new, you know, insert position you're trying to hire for. If it, you get overwhelmed, if you think of the totality of it, it's it's what is, how do we endure to just the next checkpoint? And and that's enough often. Yeah, well said. And I, I, I view it a few different ways. So, you know, pale in comparison to, to Shackleton, I, it wasn't a century ago and I didn't have lots of men, you know, shipwrecked depending on me for, for, <laughs> for their life. But, you know, I can remember when we launched My Buddy Green in 2009 and I said to my, my wife, co-founder Colleen, who had her full-time job at the time supporting us, I said, look, just give me like three, three to six months. I can figure this out. I'm going to get the cash flow positive. That took three years. And, and it was very tough on our marriage, you know, not be, she was, she was in a job she hated. She was supporting us. She was working on weekends to help with my money green, but I was all in. Uh, if I would have known in 09 that, Hey, this is really going to take three years before I can pay myself anything 
wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have been a, would have been a non-starter for both of us. We didn't know it was one one step at a time. And and to your point, you know what I found in, in the entrepreneurial journey. I say that all the time. You know, we just got to do this one thing, this one hire, this one number, this one goal. But I, I think what I've learned is, you know, there are always milestones, and you always have problems. I think this is a good metaphor for life. Your your problems don't go away; they just change. And you need to embrace them. It's just part of the journey. Like you never get to this place, whether it's in starting a business or in life, this one thing where everything's just magical. Maybe if someone has, you know, devastating illness or something, really something that, that will change. But fundamentally, problems don't go away. They just change. Yeah, there's a there's a Haitian proverb that I, I quote in uh, The Obstacle is the Way. It basically is like behind mountains, there are more mountains. And like you never just get to the other side. You never feel like you arrived. I feel like the only thing you can really do, the, the one thing I have learned, because it isn't just like one damn thing after another and it never gets better. Where it does get better is you start to actually enjoy and love that, right? So like, if you're like, this is miserable, I'm burned out, like I'm not having no fun. And once I do all this stuff, then I'll start having fun. I think you're going to be sorely disappointed. But one of the things I've tried to work on is like actually enjoying the writing while I'm doing it and coming to realize that the gift is getting to do this as a job and finding the parts of it that I love and and embracing that, like not being so dependent on outcomes to validate or justify all the pain and suffering that you that went into it, but to replace the pain and suffering with presence and gratitude and a sort of a love of the process of it makes it so it's not one damn thing or another. It's just what you do, right? Um, that to me, that that's where you get, that's, that's what, that's what sort of happiness and joy and the reward of the work is when you come to actually appreciate the work. And this is something I've gotten from a lot of the professional athletes that I've talked to or worked with. They're like, the one thing they look back on it with regret, it's not like, oh, I wish I won more games. I wish I played harder. They're like, I just wish I enjoyed the surrealness of getting to play professional baseball or basketball or football. Like, I should have had more fun in that moment. That's not that they should have tried less hard or anything, but they should have said like, this is crazy, unlikely luckiness. And to not appreciate that is to not, uh, is to take it for granted. It reminds me, we had Troy Aikman on the show and he was describing how great guy, like huge, huge wellness enthusiast. And he was saying how he was essentially groomed to win a Super Bowl. You know, he was number one pick in the draft playing for the Dallas Cowboys. There's one one objective, and that's to win a Super Bowl. That's it. Anything else is a failure. He finally wins the Super Bowl. Teammates are celebrating. He's alone in a hotel room by himself. And just having this existential moment where he said it felt like it was he was a teenager where everything would be solved. All of his problems would go away when he got his license. And he did it. He accomplished the thing. And, and, and he had this kind of strange feeling like I kind of feel the same. I did it. Like there was some sort of relief, but he's just there alone in the room. Yeah, there's always an anticlimacticness to success. And you can hear about it from the biggest, you know, most successful people in the world. And 
you know, still not learn it. Um, but then you have some transformational success in your own life. You're like, I always wanted to be a millionaire. And then you check your bank account and there is $1 million in it. Or, you know, I wanted to, to, to be promoted to CFO. And then suddenly you're promoted to CFO. You get the thing and you're sitting there getting it and you feel that anticlimacticness that it wasn't as magical or transformational as you thought it would be. This is a pivotal, life-changing like intersection that you're at. And not everyone realizes that. You have to, like, you can take from this, oh, the success was never going to make give me the feeling that I wanted. It was never going to change anything. Uh, it was never going to fulfill that. I was never going to address this inner stuff with outer st stuff. Or, uh, and very few people come to that realization. And much more often what, what we do in that moment, you know, you've won the Super Bowl, you go, oh, I have to win two Super Bowls. I have to show that it was not a fluke, right? This is Kevin Durant. Oh, my, my championships with the Warriors didn't count because I was playing with Steph Curry, right? I have to go to Brooklyn and do it on my own as the bus driver, as they call it, and then I'll feel good. And then, you know, look, look at what he's done to himself. It's been like one terrible season after another. Like he gave up a really good thing because he told himself that it would, he had to do it a different way to finally get that feeling inside. And it takes a lot of self-discipline in that moment to catch yourself and go, has it ever been true ever in human history that someone felt good about themselves after a certain amount of accomplishments. No, that's not how it works. You were never going to get it that way. And you, and getting more of it won't make it more likely that you're going to get it that way. And uh, that, that, I mean, that is to me like the ultimate, the penultimate self-discipline is, is checking that part of your evolutionary desire to do more and more and more. Well, don't get me started on Kevin Durant. I'm since we're relocating to Miami, I'm becoming a, a Pat Riley heat culture type of guy. Uh, <laughs> but, but getting back to that fundamental question, so that's not the way to get it. The, we'll call it the Kevin Durant way is not the way to get it. How, how do we get that? How do we find that happiness and joy that is not fleeting, but it's somewhat everlasting? Yeah, I think you, you get it like because you love playing basketball, right? Like you you get it by saying, Am I the best basketball player that I can be? Am where, where you know what I mean? You you do it by focusing inward, and then you know does this make it more likely that you'll be able to get the external stuff? I think so, but it has the added benefit of not making you dependent on that external stuff to feel good about yourself as a human being. Of all the notable figures you cite in the book. Uh, I definitely had had my favorites because I shared. I'm I'm curious, who was your favorite? Who had the greatest impact for you personally? I don't know if there was like a, an exact greatest or a favorite, but I I did find myself going down a very deep rabbit hole with Queen Elizabeth II because you know we so often think of power or you know uh, leadership as being like what you do, right? And you look at her job, the job of the Queen of England, the head of the Commonwealth, is is more defined by what they can't do, right? Like her, her job is what she can't say, what she can't do. She is 
has to be this kind of symbol. And and look, there's all sorts of problems uh, ethically, morally with the, the, the history of the British Empire and with colonialism and all that. So I'm not making light of all that. But I am interested in basically her full-time job is restraint. And I, I'm also fascinated with her ability. I mean, she's had this job since like 19, the mid-1940s, right? Uh, one of the longest serving, uh, not just uh, monarchs in history, but she's kind of one of the longest serving people in any job ever. And the monarchy, when she took it over and now, are almost unrecognizable from each other. Like the, the number of changes and the evolution and the uh, reforms that she's made. And yet she did that primarily by being a keeper of tradition, right? Like they have this great expression in the royal household of, uh, if things are going to stay the same, then things are going to have to change, right? And she's kind of this beautiful, strange embodiment of changing constantly in order to preserve and maintain and uphold an idea. And I think there's something to that that we can learn from. Like me as a writer 10 years ago wouldn't work in the position that I'm in now. And 30 years from now, if I'm lucky enough to keep doing it, almost everything is going to have to have changed. And yet there has to be some sort of true through line there. So, you know, I probably read 4,000 pages of books about Queen Elizabeth to write a, you know, a 4,000 word chapter about her in the book. But I just, I just became obsessed and uh, very, very interested in, in also just like, this is a person who's been in the public eye for 70 years and she's never once given an on-the-record interview to a journalist. Think of all the things that she's wanted to say, that all the things that people have gotten wrong about her, all the misunderstandings, all the criticism. And you know, now we have leaders today who can't go eight seconds without tweeting the, you know, the the slightest thought that pops into their head. I was just I was just blown away by her restraint and her poise and, and ended up focusing a lot on that in the book. I haven't done the reading you've done, but I, I have found The Crown on Netflix very fascinating. <laughs> so so in closing, what is your hope with this book? I'd like to leave people with a kind of reverence for this important idea, which is discipline. I'd like to make an argument, uh, a persuasive, uh, my goal is to make a persuasive case for something that feels very unsexy, um, actually being profoundly important. And I, I sort of make this argument in the book that basically discipline is predictive in the sense that, uh, you know, if you uh, are disciplined, it makes it more likely you'll be able to be successful in the future. But also like what I think so great about discipline is that it makes whatever you do great, right? Like if you're disciplined about your job sweeping the floor, that can become an elevated thing. Uh, I talk about Lou Gehrig in the book and they were like, one of his teammates was like, he was the greatest man who ever, who ever walked the earth. And then the man was like, uh, 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 a reporter was like, why? Well, what did he do? And he was like, you know, he never smoked. He never did drugs. He went to bed. He got up early. He showed up to work. Like he lists these like ordinary things, but that is what's so I think 
amazing about discipline is that by focusing on these kind of ordinary basic things, you have the ability to be elevated and to be extraordinary. Well said. Always a pleasure. Ryan, congrats on the book, Discipline is Destiny. Thanks so much.